you may remember me using this before because it comes up again and again in the struggle of workers to get some power at work. In his ballad, Pretty Boy Floyd, Woody Guthrie sang these words. Yes, as through this world I've wandered, I've seen lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six-gun and some with a fountain pen. Now today, that's real life. And today, that's why we are going to talk about something called forced arbitration, which is a mumbo-jumbo legal term that basically means millions of workers are giving up their rights to corporations who are stealing billions of dollars from workers by using the power of the corporate pen. And I'll also chat with Tomas Ramos, a progressive running for the 15th Congressional District in New York. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for March 4th, 2020. Reminder, as usual, this podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job and decent pay and benefits and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees, and yes, nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. You can hear this podcast basically anywhere you want to tune in, like the Progressive Radio Network, Thursdays at 6 p.m., on Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. We depend not just on our major sponsor, but small financial supporters. So please do go over to workinglife.org. I know you've heard this every single week. I'm urging you to do this this week. And click on that podcast tab. Help us out a little bit. Even with $5 a month, you can help us keep this podcast going and bringing you the information that you're not going to get in most other places. On that podcast tab, you'll see our link to Patreon, and that's the way you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. So are you having a hangover from Super Tuesday? Well, welcome to your antidote for Super Tuesday. We're not really going to talk too much about the results of Super Tuesday. There's a long way to go is the only thing I'll say. So calm down, re-energize, refocus, and get out there and organize. So many moons ago, I was part of a lawsuit against big media companies who were stealing the works of tens of thousands of writers, photographers, and graphic artists. And they were stealing it by taking those works and using them in new media at the time. This was back in the 1990s. It was CD-ROMs, Nexus Lexus. This was way before the internet. And these big companies had no right to use those works in those new media, but they were still doing that, and they were violating our copyrights. They were essentially stealing our works. We sued and won in the United States Supreme Court after a seven-year battle. And now I will whisper very quietly an admission which I sometimes feel when I say it requires that I then go take a shower because I can't bear to think of this. Even William Rehnquist, Antonin Scalia, and yes, Clarence Thomas voted with us. Egads, I won't live that one down ever. But here's what happened. And I wasn't really shocked by this. Once we won in the Supreme Court, corporations basically rewrote their contracts and basically bullied people to sign contracts that then signed away those rights in perpetuity, those copyrights. So what we won in court, most writers, photographers, and graphic artists would then lose 
once they signed into new contracts, with the exception of a small percentage of folks who had the power and leverage and, frankly, courage to fight back against those conditions. So what you learn when you listen to Woody Guthrie is clearly that the pen can take away rights that you might win, say, in a court. And it's the pen that changes the contract, that forces you to sign in the United States of America in the so-called free market system. They steal your rights. They take away your rights by bullying people and forcing folks to sign their rights away. And I'll add that the only true protection against that is to have a union to fight for you. Now, taking away people's rights via the contract has been in the air in the political arena in the past few weeks, and that's essentially what Michael Bloomberg does to his workers who are forced to sign away their rights to speak up and other rights when they sign non-disclosure agreements. That's part of an overall trend that has accelerated and spread in the past, say, 20 to 30 years, right down to low-paid workers. People are being abused via the written contract, and that trend parallels the decline of union power. A big one, which is kind of unnoticed, is a contract term that forces workers to agree to arbitration if they have a dispute with an employer. Say that you're pretty sure your boss is stealing wages from you, and that happens all the time. Say you think your boss is not paying you your overtime pay, and you can prove it. You can't sue him if you've been forced to agree to arbitration, and you and your fellow workers can't band together to start a big class action lawsuit to get wages back if you've signed those documents. And arbitration will almost always work in favor of the company. It's just a biased system. And it's huge money. Our good friends at the National Employment and Law Project figured that companies have stolen the wages of 6.25 million workers who make less than $13 an hour, and that theft totals up to $12.6 billion just last year. And that the vast majority of those folks have been forced as a condition of getting a job to agree to that arbitration which in the real world, let's face it, folks, regular workers don't have the time or resources to fight to recover their wages, so they just give up. Now, here to talk more about this is Hugh Barron, a staff attorney with NELP. And in the news, Hugh, is something related to the issue that you focused on, forced arbitration, which I thought was a good connection to bringing this up on this particular podcast. And it has to do with Michael Bloomberg's use of non-disclosure agreements, as you know, with his workers, where essentially he shuts them down from talking about any issue that happened at work, especially if it comes to sexual harassment or discrimination. And I raise that mostly to ask you the question, is this a pretty common thing that we're seeing before we dig into forced arbitration, especially, is it pretty common now and is it growing and is it a reality for most workers that corporations are using written contracts to deprive people of some basic rights, essentially rights of freedom of expression and the right to sue? I would say that non-disclosure agreements are unfortunately quite common when it comes to settlements of claims. So when there's been a dispute um, and a claim has emerged, you know, that has emerged, whether it's for sexual harassment or 
wage theft or other kinds of mis, you know, employer misconduct, um, it is quite common for employers to insist on non-disclosure agreements as a condition of settling that lawsuit. Um, whether that's right, whether that's okay, I think, um, you know, is a big question of public discussion. And I think a lot, um, a lot of real concerns have been raised about how routine this has become because it ends up um, effectively covering up and silencing women in particular um, and anyone, um, women or men, who report sexual harassment um, and sexual assault in the workplace, um, as well as discrimination. Um, so, and particularly for those kinds of claims, it's so harmful because knowing, you know, one, if you don't know that somebody has been accused, an employer or a supervisor has been accused in your workplace, um, you are, you're essentially operating without any warning. But then if you yourself experience harassment, um, if you experience discriminatory conduct, um, it becomes much harder to prove a pattern if it's just your word against that person's. Um, and you don't have any, you don't have the ability to find out who else is out there who might have experienced this too. But it strikes me as the general environment and there's a growth in the use of contracts on the part of employers to grab all sorts of rights. And we're going to be talking in a moment about forced arbitration and especially thinking about a lawsuit that I was involved in uh, some years ago when we sued and successfully won in the United States Supreme Court. This was on behalf of freelance writers the notion that essentially publishing companies were stealing away our copyrights by using our work without permission. So what big corporations did, what media corporations did is they basically got around that ruling in the Supreme Court by changing contracts and forcing people to sign away their rights. And that's essentially what's happening with the forced arbitration that you looked at, that you've got a ton of workers, lots of workers, and you looked at workers who are making less than $13 per hour these are essentially low-paid jobs who are being forced to give up rights to arbitration through a contract. So how does that actually happen? If I get a job, does the contract say in little, 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 little tiny words that I'm giving that up and it's in fact almost not noticed by most workers or is it an explicit conversation? It sounds like it's, my guess is it's more silent and you, you're signing away rights in a broader contract. So it really varies. Um, the way you described it is one way, right? It's often when you start a job, um, buried in your employment paperwork will be some little clause that most people don't understand if they even read it. Um, that is a forced arbitration clause. And right now, 55% of non-union private sector employees are already subject to forced arbitration. That includes 59% of African-American workers. Um, it includes 56%, uh, 57% of women workers. Um, they're the two groups that are most likely to be subject to forced arbitration. If you earn under $13 an hour, 64.5% of workers earning under $13 an hour are subject to forced arbitration. So how this happens, one way is what you described, right? You start a job and you sign something that says in either um, that either references a handbook that has an, an arbitration agreement in it, um, and really we shouldn't call them agreements; they're really requirements. Um, so either 
you have a handbook with the requirement or you've signed a, con- a contract or an employment agreement and somewhere buried in there is a section that requires forced arbitration. And let's be clear, you don't have a choice about negotiating points 1, 10, and 14 in those agreements. Most often, it's you got to sign it all or you don't get the job, right? Correct. Yeah, except for very, very high wage earners, um, it's really difficult for the vast majority of employees to have any say over these kinds of employment agreements. They're usually pretty form documents that are just company policy. You have to you you onboard into a job. You, this is the document you sign. Um, so so yeah, most people have no real meaningful way they could negotiate arbitration out of their uh, employment agreement. There is an, there are other ways though um, that arbitration gets imposed. Forced arbitration gets imposed on existing employees. So there have been multiple cases where employers have sent an email to their employees and they've said. We are changing our handbook. We have a new section on dispute resolution. If you don't, if you don't quit your job now, essentially, if you continue to work here, you've accepted the terms of this agreement, and that has been upheld by numerous courts. So, the key thing that you mentioned that I don't want to just gloss over is you're underscoring many times the reality that this happens in non union settings. And this is kind of related to where I started our conversation. It seems to me that part of the reason this is increasing is probably related directly to the decline of union power, because in a union setting, obviously the union contract that's negotiated with management defines the rights that workers have. And it's probably almost impossible for workers to be forced to do those kinds of things, forced arbitration in a union setting, because usually in a union contract, there's a grievance procedure. There's a way in which things get resolved, right? So we're very much looking at, this isn't just a legalistic conversation. This is about the lack of power that workers have in today's marketplace, in the workplace, because of the attack against unions. Absolutely. And I think the declining power of workers is why not just, you know, not just forced arbitration, um, but also non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements that occur before you've even had a dispute, right? Um, uh, non-compete agreements, not those kinds of things are what we broadly call coercive waivers here at NELP. Um, the reason employers have the power to impose them ultimately is because workers don't have the power to say no. Workers don't have the power to say, okay, I, you know, I'm going to negotiate this dispute resolution piece out of my individual contract. No, they don't have that power by themselves. Um, But one thing that we have seen um, also is that there are employers who, when they try to impose forced arbitration on existing employees, those existing employees are able to band together and fight back. Um, And so there was a recent, you know, a couple of years ago at Google, this is a really potent example of this, where those employees rose up. Um, after realizing that forced arbitration and non-disclosure agreements had allowed um, co- you know, a culture of sexual harassment to persist at the, you know, some of the highest levels of the company. And they rose up and Google first got rid of, you know, made an exception to their forced arbitration agreement. Um, 
The employees said that wasn't good enough, and they kept fighting and organizing and walking out. Um, and they won that fight. Google rolled back forced arbitration across its full its its um, non-contract full-time workforce, and that was a big victory. Um, and it's, it shows the kind of power employees can have. So I, I guess my one one thing I would say is, you know, employees have more power than they think they do to challenge forced arbitration when it is being imposed on them. So let's get concrete here. This is a great legal conversation about forced arbitration and the clauses, but there's a real practical effect, and that's what your study looked at. And on our podcast, folks from NELP have talked about the great work you've done on looking at the huge amount of wages that are stolen every year from workers. And that's in the form of, for example, uh, workers aren't being paid the overtime that is coming to them, and employers steal that. And essentially, government agencies don't have the resources or the interest in pursuing employers who have stolen billions and billions of dollars every single year from workers. And again, partly because of the decline in union power, that number is growing, the amount of money that is stolen from workers. And the point here is that when workers give up their right to sue, and they are then forced into these arbitration schemes. Essentially, employers are foreclosing in the legal sense, blocking workers from suing in courts, either individually or as a class. And as you know, it's a lot easier for workers to band together and file a class action lawsuit to regain money, partly because of the legal cost. And so what employers are doing by forcing these workers to sign these forced arbitration agreements, they're essentially collecting on the theft of the money that's happening every day in the workplace, right? Yeah. And that, um, and the total impact of that is really large as we found. Um, so $12.6 billion was stolen in wages from private sector, non-union workers who earn less than $13 an hour and are subject to forced arbitration. And because of the dynamics of forced arbitration, because it's such a stacked unfair deck where you have corporate handpicked arbitrators, where you have very limited procedural rights, um, where you're often per permitted very little discovery into your claims, workers look at that and they and they're uh, if they can get an attorney, um, they're lucky, honestly, because workers and their attorneys look at that and they see a loser case where they have the worker has to proceed by themselves. And so what most people do is they just give up. They just don't file a claim. And so that that money that is not being recovered um, is not being pursued. That's just lining corporate pockets. Right. And and that's just going to continue unless we take action. And I wonder if you can, in a very short fashion, I don't want like the whole legal um, ABC, describe what an arbitration case looks like. You kind of referenced it just a moment ago when you said a worker essentially has to come up on their own mostly because most lawyers won't take these single arbitration cases unless there's a huge amount of money involved. They're essentially forced to represent themselves, I would imagine, versus a corporate attorney and in-house legal counsel before a probably a biased arbitrator, right? So how does that work in 25 words or less? Here's, here's how I would think about it. Um, when you go to court, when you go for a judge and jury, the judge isn't paid more money or less money, whether they take your case, whether they have 
hearings on your case, whether they decide in your favor or not. In arbitration, though, that profit incentive suddenly takes over. So every time that an arbitrator does something in a, in a case, they have to be paid for it. Well, who's paying for it? The employer's paying for it. And when the employer is, and by the way, who's bringing them arbitration business? The employers are over and over and over again. And so at the end of the day, the repeat players are the, are the employers and they are paying for the arbitrator's time on that case so much so that the, the, the structural framework of this um, entirely favors employers. And so employees lose more, way more often. It's very hard to win in arbitration. And when you do, you often win you know, a third or less of the damages that you actually would if you were in federal or state court before a judge and jury. And it's kind of nerve-wracking, frankly, too. Let's face it, even if you thought you had an even shot on the merits, an individual worker doesn't have usually the wherewithal to present a case in front of an arbitrator versus the corporate representative who has done this thousands and thousands of times. And so they're experienced and skilled, and they know how to sway an arbitrator who's already slightly biased, if not actually completely biased towards the corporation, right? Right. And look, I mean, workers, um, you know, everybody, it's always better to have counsel, whether you're in arbitration or in court. Um, if I think the reality is that most workers aren't actually proceeding by themselves unrepresented in arbitration, they're just not proceeding at all. I see. They just give, they just give <laughs> um, up. They just give up, right? They just give up. Exactly. Because, um, because of all the dynamics you're talking about, it is extremely scary to go pursue your rights, particularly if you don't know any of the ins and outs of how to do it. And while employers like to sell arbitration as something that's simple and fast, the reality is it's still a complicated legal proceeding. Um, and, and, and people's rights are on the line with every decision that an arbitrator makes in a case. And so if you don't have somebody there who knows the system and is safeguarding your rights, you are really, you're, you're really liable to lose. So most people just aren't pursuing this at all. And so this is how employers rack up billions and billions of dollars in money that they have essentially stolen from workers. Because if you think about it, I'm the one single worker who feels like maybe I'm due $500, $1,000, a couple of thousand dollars. I give up. I walk away. And if you multiply that by the 6.1 million employees earning less than $13 an hour who are subject to forced arbitration, which is the number you've identified, that's where it becomes in total a huge amount of money, which is why it makes sense from an employer's standpoint to steal away that right from workers and to force them into arbitration. So what's the solution here? If we can wind up our conversation, if you can say in brief, what are you trying to do? And what's the message here about trying to change that power dynamic short of mass unionization, which obviously would solve this partly, but in, in the absence of that, at least in the short term, what's the goal to change that power dynamic? Sure. So in the long term, Congress needs to ban forced arbitration. Um, federal, the Federal Arbitration Act was never intended to apply to employment and consumer um, disputes, it needs to change. Um, 
the House has already passed a bill, the Forced Arbitration and Justice Repeal Act, that would do that. It is sitting and pending in the Senate and likely will continue to do so. Um, in the short term, though, in New York and in several other states, there have been whistleblower enforcement bills that are modeled on California's Private Attorneys General Act that have been introduced. So those bills allow workers to stand in the shoes of the state Department of Labor and pursue civil penalties for violations of state labor law. And that is a really powerful way workers can hold employers accountable for their lawbreaking because those actions would not be subject to forced arbitration. So workers would have a way back into court before a judge and a jury. Um, and so we think that the most important you know, priority for people who can, are concerned about this issue right now is to pass, in New York, it's called the Empire Act, Empowering People and Rights Enforcement Act. Um, you can go to www.empire.org, empireacts.org, um, for all, more information about that campaign. Um, but there's also bills that are pending in Oregon, Washington, Connecticut, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Maine. Um, and so those are really powerful uh, steps that workers can take uh, to combat the rise of forced arbitration and class and collective action waivers. old neighborhood of Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan was the birthplace of Tomas Ramos. It has the highest Dominican population outside the Dominican Republic, so much so that when the Dominican Republic has a presidential election, the candidates campaign in Washington Heights because people keep close ties to what's going on in the DR. Tomas is running as a very strong progressive for a solidly Democratic seat against a passel of Democrats who are competing to fill the seat of Jose Serrano, who is retiring. Whoever wins that primary, that's it. They're going to be the next congressperson from the 15th Congressional District in New York. Now, you can see Tomas's campaign and his views at Tomas, that's T-O-M-A-S, TomasforCongress.com. And as usual, Tomas joins me now to talk about his campaign. So, Tomas, you hail from my old neighborhood, Washington Heights, New York City. And as you point out in your bio, you're a first-generation Dominican-American. And as you know, maybe my listeners don't know, Washington Heights is the largest Dominican population outside the Dominican Republic. I mean, it's really a great community and uh, I lived there from the end of the 1980s. And you point out in your bio that that was a time when Washington Heights was, quote, wracked by the crack cocaine epidemic. And do you remember that, um, that basically that epidemic and what happened? Or is that more something that your parents talked to you about? Yeah, it, it was more something my parents talked about. And uh, for my because my father was in that whole, uh, you know, just, just uh, industry of, of drug dealing in that time. So he was incarcerated for 12 years uh, because of, you know, getting caught up in the system. 
but my mom moved us out when we were five years old because she knew that if if we were to stay there, that the cycle uh, would repeat itself uh, with us being born and raised in, in Washington Heights. Um, but I remember com- coming back as a child and seeing my cousins living in the Heights and uh, just seeing people out in the streets and uh, just, you know, n- n- no real progression going on throughout the years that I would go visit. Yeah, it was a very tough time, and Washington Heights has uh, changed dramatically, I think, since then, and especially because there's a huge amount of pressure now on small businesses to be able to survive in Washington Heights as the rents have gone up. I know a lot of the local businesses on 181st Street have been pushed out because rents have been going up. And I'm curious, really mainly on the question of criminal justice reform, because that's one of your big planks, how much of that was informed by your father being incarcerated for 12 years? Is it something personal to you, or is it also something that you've learned from being an organizer and a community activist? Both. Uh, For me, it's personal, and it's something that I've learned uh, as being a community organizer. When my father was taken away, uh, my mom used to send us, uh, she used to take us to go visit him at Fort Dix Federal Prison in New Jersey, and we would see him once a year. And, you know, being raised without a father is a huge void, a, a gap, you know. So my mom raised us, single mother, four children. And all I ever wanted was to have a male figure, a father to just throw a base, have a baseball catch with. And I never had that opportunity. Um, so for me, it's like a lot of our young people today are, are, are faced with that. Their, their fathers are absentee, they're incarcerated uh, or dead, you know. So how, how can we bridge that gap and support our, our single mothers that are going through this today? Because the Bronx right now actually has the largest population of single mothers in New York State. Uh, so that's something that it's, I'm very passionate about because uh, I saw my mom struggle for us to to get a good education and and taking and she did everything she could to take us out of the hood per se and give us the best quality education we can. Uh, so it's extremely important for me because I lived it and also with a criminal justice system, it's so it's very punitive and not restorative. Uh, and even the reentry process for my father, well, there was no reentry; they deported him to Dominican Republic. And what that caused was our, our entire family to leave uh, Pennsylvania at that time and move to the American Republic so we can be with our, you know, so my mom can reunite us with the family. Um, and I experienced a lot of physical, mental trauma in Dominican Republic. But I always say that was the best thing that happened to me because I got to learn my, my culture and learn how our, our communities and families from DR coming back to the States and understanding why they left because there's so much poverty and just no opportunity for upward mobility in the Dominican Republic. Um, so the criminal justice system is something that I'm, I'm firsthand experienced through my father and even myself, because I actually been through the system and targeted by police as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, one more thing on the criminal justice system, because it is something that you feel very passionate about. You specifically talk about abolishing private prisons. And we know, especially because it's been part of the debate in the presidential campaign, Bernie Sanders has been very passionate about this. Talk a little bit about how the private prison industrial complex has really taken hold of the system and essentially drives it and encourages it to basically be what it is because of the profit motive. Yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous that it was even ever created. Uh, and it's been going on for so long. I, I, I'm happy that finally we have presidential candidates that are talking about it. 
but this has been going on forever, you know? Uh, and, and when we look at, uh, when the civil rights movement back then, when they, you know, got a bunch of legislation that was passed to help people of color, you know, get, you know, voting and whatnot, but they still did not reform our criminal justice system in the sense of abolishing and ending the private prisons. Uh, this is a, another form of slavery. Uh, and that's what's going on. You're mass incarcerating our communities. I talk about in 88, that was when my father was arrested. Rudy Giuliani was a federal prosecutor who, uh, who, who took my father down. And what, what he did was rip, uh, fathers away that they, he was a main breadwinner from our families and just leave our single mothers without support systems. I talk about where, where were the social services? Uh, where was investments in education and social services to support, you know, children? I was one years old that are born into poverty and have an opportunity to get out. So what he did was put a bandit in a much larger issue, which is poverty and had literally no solutions to getting children that are born in poverty out of it, you know? So it, it's, 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 you know, for, so for me, that's how I look at it. We have to, uh, make sure that the school to prison pipeline, we need to find better solutions when it comes to education. And I always talk about the whole child and it's literally at birth. We got to figure out when our children are born in our communities and they're born into poverty, how are we going to get them out of poverty? Mm-hmm. And what are the great p- proposals you have uh, in your extensive progressive positions? And I encourage my listeners to go to Tomas's website. It's Tomas, T-O-M-A-S, TomasforCongress.com, is in fact something to support not just single mothers, but parents in general. And that's a one-year paid parental leave, which is pretty extraordinary. I just did a segment recently about how the United States alone among most advanced nations in the world has no laws for paid parental leave. If you're lucky, you get unpaid parental leave. But it's crazy, especially because the science is pretty clear that kids, when they're very, very young, from the time they're born and in their first years, that's the most crucial part, to have your parents around, to have uh, parental leave. And so you're suggesting one year paid parental leave funded by the government. So explain a little bit what your vision is about this and actually how it would be funded, practically speaking. Yeah. So what, there's right now, there's several countries in Europe that already have this going on. Uh, and a lot of the pushback in the States will be, yeah, how are we going to fund it? Who's going to pay for it? Employers shouldn't have to pay for it. Uh, the federal government should pay for it. Uh, and to your point, it is the most crucial moments of a child is when they're born and, and the parents spending time with them, you know, for the first year. So what happens is, uh, you have a mother that has to work two jobs so they can, uh, p- put their child into a, day- a quality daycare. And now they're not even being able to, to raise their own children, you know, and then it's just like, they're not getting the attention that they need. Uh, the federal government, we have resources. We have the money to pay for this program. You know, this this policy that I'm uh, that I that I'm advocating for. This is the most important thing in our, our in any child's life is their first years with their parents. And I don't know why we haven't been talking about this. It's just it's ridiculously crazy. For, you know, if you think about it. Um, and you have Denmark, Sweden, those countries are already doing it. And you see the quality of life that they have and their children, you know, spending time with them and, and their love from their families. You know, this is what we need to do in America. We have the money for it. So that, that's not the problem. It's just we have to start thinking 
start changing the way that we think uh, about things. Like, why should that parent pick up another job so they can pay for the child to go to daycare? And then the other policy that I that I'm uh, having my that I'm that I am advocating for is uh, universal childcare. You know, but it has to be at birth. You know, it has to be accessible and it has to be available to to our families. Um, and and that's that's what I'm proposing. Another proposal that you have, which may seem minor, relatively speaking, to folks or relative to your position on Medicare for all and these big items, is free high-speed internet. Now, that caught my attention because, like many people, I rely on the internet, and it's becoming more and more expensive. So it's not just a question of just some leisurely thing to have or some nice little benefit. It really impacts people's ability to engage in the world, engage in business, and advance themselves, certainly when it comes to education. So you're, you're really in favor of that. And would that be something that the government would fund uh, underwrite city by city or state by state, or would that come from the federal funding from your point of view? It, it, it most of it should come from the federal, but it, and it, we should build partnerships with the local and state and start really looking at how inaccessible it is to our communities right now. I work in the housing projects in the Bronx. I'll tell you right now, there is a, a huge percentage of families that do not have broadband internet uh, access in their apartments, so they have to go to a local library. Well, the local library is closed at some point, you know, um, and, and so I look at this as if we're going to combat poverty, the most, the basic needs at this point, like internet, like this is something that if you don't have access to it today, it's like you're so far behind. And where are we going as a society when we're leaving behind an entire uh, population that has been dis disenfranchised for so long? So that a lot of people that may live in different areas of the country may not understand that there are families today that do not have access to internet. That's a reality. And that is that is uh, completely at this point. It's a, it, I believe it's a human right to have that because this is where, like like you said, this is how we're getting educated. This is how our children are being raised. They're being raised in the era of technology. This is where we're going through job creation, uh, artificial intelligence, automation. We have to. We cannot get our leave our communities behind. And right now, that is happening. Uh, and I don't know if you if you knew or not. I actually created the first. Uh, tech center in public housing in New York City. So I run a community center in the in the in public housing, and I told myself that there's no way that uh, I could continue working in my capacity if we do not start combating this issue of n not having access to technology. So I brought in iMac computers, 3D printers, and I made the entire community center uh, access Wi-Fi um, uh, wi capable. So families that don't have uh, broadband or computers or access to any of that can come into the community center and they can do work. And, and also we're doing a, a lot of programming around uh, uh, um, coding, software development, engineering. Uh, so now our, our children actually have an opportunity to get access to different things in the community. And just to expand on that a little bit more, this isn't just about urban communities. You can go to lots of rural communities all across the United States where they don't have access to high-speed internet. So your issue could resonate not just in urban communities, but everywhere. And it's really a question about 
monopolies, right? Because it's really inexpensive from a technological point of view to underwrite this if the government took control of this. And it's only because of these powerful monopolies like Spectrum and the big cable companies. This goes back to the days of the Clinton administration when they deregulated the telecommunications industry. The reason we have these high bills, high cable bills, and the inability to have access to internet as a free right is because of monopolies, right? Yes. No, no, you, you, you nailed it. You're completely right with that. Uh, it's, it's unfair. These, co- these corporations are, are, are just profiting so much, making so much money uh, for these high costs to access for, uh, for high speed internet. It's, it's ridiculous at this point. Uh, the federal government needs to get involved and needs to start regulating this uh, because paying a hundred bucks for internet a month is not fair. So here's a practical question and talk a little bit about the campaign that you're running right now. You're running in the 15th Congressional District. There are 14 candidates running, at least that's as of when I just checked. It's possible that someone dropped out or someone (laughs) jumped in, but it's roughly 14 candidates. So there's a positive part of that when you have lots of candidates in a Democratic primary it's basically a plurality. So you could win in theory with 20% of the vote or even 15% of the vote if it's split up in many ways. The downside is you're trying to get yourself known and get your name out there raised above a whole gaggle of people. So what's your strategy and how have you been campaigning and what's the sense among voters that you found as you've knocked on doors and walked the streets? Yeah, so a lot of, First and foremost, I was the first candidate to jump in out uh, to to announce and file. Uh, so I was actually going to challenge the incumbent who uh, has been there for thirty years, Jose Serrano. Uh, so it's not like I saw an open seat and I'm like, let me jump in so I can get a looking for you know get a new job. No, I joined this race because our this district has been called the poorest congressional district in the country, and I saw our children being born into poverty with no way out. As an educator, there was no way I could just sit back and let this continue to happen. So I said, what can I do? I looked at a congressional uh, represent, uh, representative, and he was an absentee representative. So I said, you know what? Let me step up and let me go. Uh, let me challenge him and be a real voice for our community. So I wanted to make sure that I'm, I'm very clear about that. Then he announced his retirement, and that's when the, everybody started you know, announcing that they're running. A lot, many of the people that are running are career politicians that have failed us. The community is tired of the same status quo career politicians. Right now, there's a real political movement, not only in the national level, but even so in the local level, in the Bronx, New York City, across the country, where people are saying, you know what, enough is enough. Let's get in some new vibrant leaders with a new vision for a better future. So what sets me apart from everybody else? I didn't come into this work to be a politician. I came into this work to make systemic change, make sure that every child has quality education, a roof over the head, an opportunity for a better future. Uh, this district is predominantly Dominican. It's actually the largest uh, populated, um, the, the, the highest concentration of Dominicans in any congressional district is this one, more than 50%. I'm one of two Dominicans that are running. Second, is that I am a grassroots organizer, educator that have been, I've, I've been knocking on doors since July. People joined the race September, November, October, and I've already been doing the work. I've hit over 15,000 doors. 
when I go to a door and talk to our families, they're excited to even have somebody knocking at their door because these politicians have never done that. So they now they're seeing that we they have an opportunity to put somebody that understands what they're going through and put them in this seat because we will have a real representative doing the work in Washington, D.C. Uh, so that's that's my take on how I'm going to win this race. It's gonna, I'm going to outwork everybody. And I'm building and I have built already a grassroots movement in the Bronx. So when you go and knock on doors and the advantage you do have, especially in the Bronx, is it's dense. It's a dense area. So you can walk block by block block and visit with a lot of voters, either at subway stops or at their homes. What's the main thing that they say to you that resonates with them about your candidacy, aside from, which is not inconsequential, it's important that you're not a career politician, that you're a grassroots activist, but what are you hearing is a main issue that you think is really, really caring voters and engaging voters, perhaps the different from someplace else, but maybe it's really connecting with what's happening generally in the country. The questions of obviously class warfare, the fact that people don't have enough money just to pay the bills. What is it? Yeah. So we, we're ultimately dealing with poverty. So within the realm of poverty is lack of jobs, you know, uh, lack of education, lack of affordable housing. So I'm hearing all types of, issues that people are going through, homelessness, uh, a big uh, um, drug epidemic. Uh, so when I'm talking to voters, I let them know I am an educator. I work with children. And my main objective is to get children off the streets and get them on the right track. Education is the true equalizer when it comes to combating poverty. So everybody believes that and everybody knows it. So they know that we need real investments when it comes to education and real a uh, real foundation for our community affordable housing we're getting priced out you know it, it's 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 ridiculous that in the bronx where a medium income is thirty thousand dollars you know uh the average rent right now is 1800 bucks for a one bedroom in the bronx it's ridiculous so uh rent is becoming unaffordable for families and their pay is not reflective of it even 15 dollars an hour in the bronx you cannot afford to live here so we need to really combat it in in, in a way that with a homes guarantee will help uh, definitely bring in uh, a very progressive um, outlook on how we're going to start bringing in more affordable housing for our community. Uh, violence is another thing. Um, a lot of the work that I do is youth violence prevention. We need real federal investments in, 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 in programs that are going to combat uh, uh, youth violence. One of the policy points that I, I advocate big on is we every year children have to go for physical. We also need to do a mental health screening as well in our schools because there's so much trauma, so much mental health issues that are going on in our communities, and we're not addressing it in a holistic manner when it, when it, when it becomes like, you know, there's so many issues and we don't have access to it. So how do we do it? We do it, you know, we, we build a program. Every single, every single school has on-site um, social worker, evaluator, psychologist that is able to do the mental health screening in, 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 in a way that they're able to understand what's going on with this ch with a child and evaluate it and start servicing them. You know, what goes on in our schools is they'll put metal detectors because they don't want, you know, obviously people bringing in weapons or whatnot. But what they're doing is they're protecting the teachers 
Because if there is beef between two students, they'll, they'll shoot each other out in the block. But why don't we combat it in our schools and figure out what's going on? Now let's start mediating in our schools. All right, well, this person has an issue with this person. So how are we going to combat that? You know, let's start talking to our families. So it, it, it comes to a point of we really need federal resources and to support a lot of the structures that are going on in our schools that are, that, that are unable to do it because they're, they're not well equipped with the resources to do, the, do it as well. Uh, so mental health is a huge component uh, for me and our communities because we have been struggling for so long and there has, no, there has not been any support to, to combat this in a holistic manner. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Hugh Barron and Tomas Ramos. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. You, too, can become a sponsor at whatever level you can afford. Go over to workinglife.org right now, click on the podcast tab, find your way over to Patreon, and kick in a few bucks every month just to help us keep this podcast coming to you every week with the information that, face it, you're not going to get in most other places. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week. Mm-hmm.